Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, Carly Florison. I'm a writer, a storyteller, and I'm a self-confessed history nerd. And the story that we're going to talk about today is a story about a town that has been called one of the most dangerous and contaminated places on the planet. It's a ghost town with a deadly past. And of course, you might have already guessed that I'm talking about Wittenoom. Before we get into the story, though, I'd like to pay my respects to the Banijima people who have traditionally lived in the Wittenoom area, as well as the Noongar people of the Esperance area, which is the land that I'm recording on today. The First Nations people have a history and a connection to this land that goes back tens of thousands of years, and I'd like to acknowledge that and pay my respects to their leaders, past and present, as we start this podcast today. So, this is the story of the bustling, profitable mining town called Wittenoom, and how it went from that to being a dangerous ghost town. But of course, we're going to go right back to the start, and we're going to talk about the history of Wittenoom. But before that, let me give you a bit of an idea of where Wittenoom is located. It's in the Pilbara region of Western Australia, it's inland, in the Hammersley Range, 1,420 kilometres north-northeast of Perth. Wittenoom sits just on the north edge of the Karajini National Park. And if you haven't been to the Karajini National Park before, you should absolutely go. It's an incredibly beautiful place. But don't put Wittenoom on your to-visit list, and we'll get to that soon. To begin our story, we're just going to go back to 1830, when a man called John Burdett Wittenoom arrived in Fremantle, along with his sister and his four sons. John Burdett was from England, but his family was originally from Holland, so Wittenoom was originally a Dutch name. John had been a headmaster back in England at the Newark Grammar School for 15 years, but after his wife died, he decided to emigrate to Australia to give his sons a better chance of becoming landowners, something that they would struggle to do in England. John, who had originally been ordained as an Anglican clergyman, wrote to the colonial office applying for the position of chaplain to the newly established Swan River Colony. He was granted the position with a salary of £250 a year and he was given free passage to the new colony. His unmarried sister, Eliza, decided to go with him to help look after his four children. Now, the Swan River Colony had been established the year before, as you might already know, in 1829. And when John and his family arrived, Fremantle was just a collection of tents, literally just a whole bunch of tents pitched in that area. So John and his family settled in what would become Perth, and they established a church there. And at that time, because the Swan River Colony was not a penal colony, to start with at least, they lacked the cheap manpower of the convicts. So to attract new settlers to the new colony, which was important if they wanted to succeed, the colonial governor gave away free land. The catch was that you would be given land in proportion to the monetary value of the assets that you bought with you. So if you bought a lot of assets, then you'd be given more land. And also the people that you bought with you. So the land was leasehold to begin with. But in order to get free title to the land, you had to improve the land or it would be reallocated to somebody else. 
And of course, as we know, the government gave this land away without so much as a thought to the Aboriginal people who were already living in Western Australia and had been for tens of thousands of years. But anyway, John had assets valued at £239 with him, and that included things like tools, seeds, crockery and linen and farming equipment and basic supplies. So John should have been given 40 acres for every £3 of assets that he had with him, but Governor Stirling intervened on his behalf and rounded up the amount of land that he was granted to 5,000 acres that he could select. John selected land in the area that would later become York, and it's a beautiful, fertile area. But in his first years in the settlement, he couldn't do much with the land as he was very busy in Perth. As the only clergyman in the colony colony for a while, he conducted services in Perth, Guildford and Fremantle. And if you've driven around Perth today, you'll know that it takes a while to travel between those places in a car on good roads, albeit with quite a bit of traffic, let alone in those days when there were no roads and only horses for transport. Although, to begin with, much of the travel between these places, Fremantle, Perth and Guildford, was done by boat along the Swan River. And these were very difficult days for the Swan River colony. Although 2,000 settlers arrived in the Swan River colony in its first year, enthusiasm quickly waned and in 1832 many settlers actually left the colony. So three years after the colony was established it had less than 2,000 settlers living there. And what's more there were very few ships coming to Fremantle in those early days as well, meaning few supplies and the settlers had to very quickly work out how to plant crops or face starvation. So anyway, we're going to fast forward a bit here. One of the things that was quite significant about John Burdett Whitnoom that I would just like to note was his interest in education, and he did a lot to promote education in the newly established colony. John served on the first education committee, and he was the chairman of the first board of education. So as you'll remember, John's first wife had, had died, and he married again in 1839, by which time he was 50 years old. But he had, after this, two daughters and another son, and the son sadly died in infancy. John Burdett Whitnoom himself died in 1855, and although his achievements as one of Western Australia's first clergymen and his efforts to promote and improve education in the colony were significant, one of his biggest legacies has been his grandchildren. And you'll know one of his grandchildren – One of John Burdett's grandchildren was Edith Cowan, who became the first woman elected to any parliament in Australia. And if you haven't listened to my previous episode about Edith Cowan, then make sure you don't miss it because she was an incredible person with a really fascinating story. We're going to follow the story of two of John's other grandsons, Edward and Frederick, and Frederick was known as Frank, who were also significant characters in the history of Western Australia. The boy's father, Charles Whitnoom, had died when they were just schoolboys, and although both boys were well-educated, they didn't want to go into public service or into banking, which were the, the kind of good options at the time. In fact, Frank worked at a bank for three years as a teenager, and he described this as being in confinement. So instead, with the help of relatives, the boys worked as jackaroos for a while, to get used to life on the land, and then they took up a lease of land with the support of their uncle called Ewan Station, and this is inland from Geraldton. 
They began to explore the Murchison area, which runs along the Murchison River inland from Kalbarri, which is north of Geraldton. And together, Edward and Frank began to take up leases of land in the Murchison, and they eventually amassed a huge empire of pastoral properties. At the peak of their empire, they managed over 2 million acres of land. And look, I don't want to suggest here that Edward and Frank didn't work hard. They did have a reputation for being hard workers and not afraid to get their hands dirty. But the same could be said of many stockmen and pastoral workers at the time. So I think that it's really interesting what a huge part lucky timing plays in some of these big fortunes that were amassed at the time. Edward and Frank just happened to be in the right place, the Murchison, at the right time, just as the area was being opened up for settlement. And they also had the funds um, and the backing of their relatives, which helped them to be able to take up these leases of land. They had the opportunity presented to them and they took it. And it also probably won't come as a surprise to you that these men, Edward and Frank, had somewhat mixed relationships with the local Aboriginal people. They did employ Indigenous shepherds, as did most of the people in the region, and they said that these Indigenous shepherds were excellent stockmen. But of course, when some of the local Indigenous people killed their sheep, Frank arrested 35 of them and marched them to Geraldton in chains. And I think it's really interesting to see Frank's attitude here. Not only did he assume that he had the right to take this land that these people had traditionally lived on for tens of thousands of years, but he also assumed that he had the legal authority to arrest them, chain them up and march them to another town just by virtue of the fact that he was a white man. And while that might have been quite a common attitude back in those days, I think we can look back on that and see just how horribly offensive and arrogant that attitude actually is. It's also such a dehumanising way to treat these people, and not to mention, of course, that Frank had taken their land to start with. He was also very keen that the police be withdrawn from the area and the settlers be allowed to deal with the Indigenous people as they saw fit – including shooting them if they stole sheep. Fortunately, the magistrate replied that Frank must be young and inexperienced in the usage of civilization. And I'm not sure that you could call this huge land grab civilization, but anyway, there we have it. At least the magistrate reigned in his some of his worst impulses. Anyway, after amassing this large land holding and a considerable amount of wealth, Edward did as you might expect, and he went into politics. He eventually became the Minister for Mines at the peak of the Gold Rush, which was, of course, an incredibly important position. And later on, he was knighted by Queen Victoria in 1900. Frank, however, continued on with his pastoral interests, although although he did pursue other things like racehorses and overseas travel from time to time. In the early 1900s, Frank acquired a property called Mulga Downs in the Pilbara region, north of Tom Price. Now, to start with, Mulga Downs wasn't a very profitable property until Frank employed a manager called George Hancock. And Hancock was a great manager, and as a result, Frank gave him a 25% share of the property. George Hancock had a son by the name of Lang Hancock. And of course, that'll be a familiar name to, to many people. We've talked a bit about Lang Hancock before, but if you can't remember who he is, 
suffice to say that Lang's daughter is Gina Reinhardt, who is Australia's richest woman. Anyway, Lang was born in 1909, so he was just a boy when his father started managing Mulga Downs. And when Lang was just 10 years old, he was exploring a gorge on the property at Mulga Downs, and he discovered what would turn out to be a large deposit of asbestos. Now, let's just stop for a minute and talk about asbestos. So, just in case you're not sure, asbestos is a naturally occurring mineral. It's a silicate, and it's made up of long fibres. It's heat resistant, and so people have used it for many years in things like insulation. And in fact, the use of asbestos goes back at least 4,500 years to when the people in Finland used it in making cooking pots and cooking utensils. Asbestos mining began in the mid-1800s as people realised that asbestos had a wide range of uses. And since that time, it's been used in making concrete, bricks, insulation, wall sheeting, flooring, roofing, and many other things, right through to, alarmingly, the filters used in gas masks during the Second World War. In the early 1900s, the dangers of asbestos began to be realised. Many asbestos miners suffered early deaths and lung issues. In 1924, a woman named Nellie Kershaw died at the very young age of 32 in Lancashire in England. Before her death, Nellie worked as a textile worker, spinning asbestos fibre into yarn for six years. And after she died, there was an inquest into her death, and it was determined that her death was caused by a new disease, which was called pulmonary asbestosis. So what we discovered is that breathing in these very fine fibres of asbestos meant that these tiny fibres can lodge in the lungs, and this can cause inflammation and infection, which is asbestosis. Or it can also cause a type of cancer which is incurable, and that's called mesothelioma. So, back to Lang Hancock. In 1935, Lang took over from his father running Mulba Downs, and around that same time, he showed some of the blue asbestos samples from Wittenoom Gorge to some friends. When they told him that the asbestos was worth £70 a tonne, he pegged a claim at the gorge, where he had discovered the asbestos, in what would become known as Wittenoom Gorge. A man called Leo Snell, who was a kangaroo shooter working on Mulba Downs, also pegged a claim at nearby Yampire Gorge, which had even more of the blue asbestos. But Lang and his business partner bought Leo's claim. And in 1938, Lang started mining asbestos there. And at the time, he was mining with a pick and shovel. Within two years, he had 22 men working at the mine. Soon after this... In 1939, Frank Wittenoom died. Lang named the town that grew around the mine there Wittenoom after Frank Wittenoom. The national company, CSR Limited, which was originally a sugar refining company that had begun manufacturing building materials, became interested in the asbestos mine. And in 1943, they purchased a majority share of Lang's mine. By this stage, the dangers of asbestos were becoming quite widely known. In 1948, Lang sold the rest of his interest in the mine. And of course, we know the rest of his story. 
1952, Lang Hancock discovered a huge iron ore deposit in the Hammersley Ranges, and he made a lot of money. Lang Hancock's story is quite interesting, but the rest of it is a story for another day. So let's go back to the the asbestos mine in Whittenham. CSR developed the mine there in Yampire Gorge and later on in Whittenham Gorge. And in 1947, a town was built around the mine works, a small distance away from the mines. In the 1950s, the town of Whittenham was the largest town in the Pilbara. Not that it was a particularly large town. In fact, at its peak, only 881 people lived there, according to census data, at least that is. It's just that during that period, there weren't many large towns in the Pilbara. In the 1950s and the 1960s, this mine was Australia's only supplier of blue asbestos. The asbestos was transported to Point Sampson in sacks that were loaded onto open-backed trucks. And I can just imagine that a lot of asbestos was blown off the trucks and ended up in the atmosphere around this time. From Point Sampson, half of the asbestos was sold overseas and half of it was used in Australia. And during this time, the mine management absolutely knew about the dangers of asbestos. As early as 1926, in Massachusetts, in the US, a mine worker successfully claimed compensation for sickness caused by asbestos. In 1944, the mine in Whittenham was told to reduce the asbestos dust levels in the town, and many warnings were given to the mine after this. Australia adopted a standard that the safe level of dust was 176 particles per cubic centimetre, and later on this was refined down to just four particles per cubic centimetre. But levels in Whitnoom were consistently off the charts at 1,000 particles per cubic centimetre. And one article that I read said that the dust was so thick that the workers had to use floodlights to be able to see properly. There was a ventilation system at the mine, but apparently all that that did was to extract the dust from the mine and pump it outside, which increased the dust outside of the mine. And despite all these warnings, the tailings from the asbestos mines, that's the waste product after the asbestos was extracted, but it still contained quite a bit of raw asbestos itself, so those tailings were used throughout the town. They were used for road surfacing, footpaths, car parks, the race course, and most frightening of all, in school playgrounds and backyard sand pits. And one of the articles that I've seen has a picture of two four-year-olds, Philip Noble and Ross Munro, playing in a sand pit of asbestos tailings in Whittenham. This is a really sad story because, tragically, these two young boys, Philip and Ross, Philip later on died of mesothelioma at the age of 36 and Ross died of mesothelioma at the age of 38. And I'm going to put a link to this article on my website if you're interested in having a look at it for yourself. A number of people tried to raise the alarm about the danger of asbestos and one person in particular was a WA Health Department official called Jim McNulty who was a specialist who also treated lung diseases. He raised the alarm and tried to warn of the dangers after finding a number of mine workers with lung disease in the town. But his warnings were ignored by the mine management. And ironically, the mine was never particularly profitable for CSR. 
And they also struggled to get workers and would often try to attract immigrant workers from overseas, who would then be stuck in a dangerous position. In 1966, after a warning from the federal government, CSR finally shut down the mine, saying that it was not profitable. And then they just walked away from everything. In the years that followed the mine's closure, Wittenoom continued to be a bustling little tourist town, attracting around 40,000 visitors a year to see the spectacular scenery and also for the popular annual horse races. The mine tailings were not cleaned up. They're still there in huge piles. And it wasn't even until later on that the roads were resurfaced and the mine tailings were removed from around the town. The Western Australian government, realising the risks, tried to scale down the activities in the town. But it wasn't until 2007 that the town was officially degazetted and the services to the town stopped. Also at this time it was removed from maps of the area. The entire area, 470 square kilometres, was declared a contaminated zone, not fit for human activities. And that makes it the largest contaminated site in the Southern Hemisphere. Despite this, people have continued to live in the town. Up until 2018, there were still three people living there. And in 2019, one man was still there. The government has continued to try to shut down the area and just this year they introduced a bill to Parliament for the compulsory acquisition of the 14 remaining privately owned properties in Wittenoom. Despite huge warning signs being posted around the town, apparently dark tourism is still popular in the area as tourists still go to visit the deserted town. During the time that Wittenoom was a town, around 20,000 people lived there. And by that I mean not all at one time. It was a small town, as I'd already said. But people came and went a lot. So a a total of 20,000 people lived there at one time or another. Of these people, an estimated 2,000 to 3,000 people have died of asbestos-related deaths, asbestosis or mesothelioma. And you will be glad to know that many people have have successfully sued CSR for damages. Another really tragic legacy of the mining in this area is that Western Australia's Indigenous people have the highest rates of mesothelioma in the world, with two-thirds of those cases being attributed to asbestos mining in the Pilbara, both from the Indigenous workers who worked in the mine or in transporting the asbestos, but also due to Indigenous people who live in that area. In the 1980s, Australia phased out the use of asbestos in building products, and in 2003, a total ban on using, manufacturing, transporting, importing or selling asbestos asbestos products came into force. And so, that's it. That's the story of Wittenoom. And if you've heard the Midnight Oil song, Blue Sky Mine, that's been inspired by Wittenoom and the mining industry there. I think it's quite sad for the Wittenoom family that their name is now associated with that um, tragic town, but the family has also played a significant role in many parts of Western Australia's history, and ironically, they really didn't have anything to do with the mine at Wittenoom at all. It was just named for them. As I mentioned, people do still visit the area, despite the huge warning signs that are posted all over the area. But can I strongly suggest that you don't do this? But instead, I'd recommend taking a look at Google Maps. Both the satellite and street view of Wittenoom are quite fascinating. I'll also post some interesting articles with some really great pictures of Wittenoom if you're interested in taking a bit of a look. 
If you're on Instagram, I've actually just set up a new Instagram account for this podcast. That's your exciting social media news for the day. The Instagram account is Wild WA Stories Podcast on Instagram. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to share some photos of Whitnoom. There's some really fantastic photos from back in the 50s. And also I'll share some links to some of the articles that I've used in researching this podcast that are really interesting if you want to do any further reading. Of course, if you're interested in the sources that I've used, you can find out more information about that on my website. That is www.wildwastories.com. You can find me on Twitter at Carly Florison, or you can email me wildwastories at gmail.com. Just a little note, if you've been listening for a while now, you'll know that I've been doing this podcast since January this year. It's quite amusing, but I started out with the incredibly optimistic idea that I might do an episode every week. Or then every second week. And now I just laugh at the naivety of this. It takes such a long time to research and write each episode. And of course, I have other things going on in my life as well. I'm also not very good at speaking off the cuff. And so I've got to have very detailed notes before I start recording a podcast. So I've been averaging around one episode per month. This is actually my 13th episode. So I'm doing a little better than one per month. And I'm pretty stoked by that. So thanks everybody for your patience. I'm really grateful that you've been patient as I've worked out this schedule. I've got a couple more in the works and these are going to be some of the shorter stories. So you can look forward to that before the end of the year. Thank you as always for listening in. It's always such a great pleasure to hear from people who have enjoyed the podcast and I really appreciate people who have gotten in touch and let me know that you've enjoyed listening in to some of these stories. So please do get in touch if you have questions, comments, ideas for topics that I should cover or anything else at all. As I said, you can email me on wildwastories at gmail.com. And don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. There's still There are still plenty of stories to cover. So I'll be continuing with the podcast next year as well. So that's it from me. Thanks again for listening in and I'll be back with another wild story from Western Australia's past very soon.